Welcome to Kuden, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. Hosted by Shihan Jeffrey Miller and Shidoshi Eric White. Shihan Miller is a 13th degree black belt and master instructor of Warrior Concepts International in Sudbury, Pennsylvania. Shidoshi Miller's martial arts career spans over 30 years and has taken him around the world to train with some of the world's best martial arts masters. Shidoshi Eric White has been a student of Shihan Miller's for over a decade. Together, they will answer your questions, discuss techniques, history, and current issues important to you, the self-defense-minded citizen and the practicing martial artist. Submit your questions by email to warriorc at warrior-concepts-online.com. Welcome everybody to another episode of Kuden, and we're great to have uh, great to have all of you, of you with us on uh, what's uh, a pretty nice Friday out here on the West Coast. Don't know about uh, you there, sir, in Pennsylvania, but oh no, here here too. Yeah, good, awesome. Yeah, you know, we're we'll rain free. Oh, you're rain free. Yeah, we, we actually still we it's a wet year out here, getting a little drizzle here and there actually today, which is kind of nice because, you know, typically uh, it gets like crazy hot out here, triple digit highs in the summer. So uh, it's been comfortable thus far, but we are transitioning, you know, kind of from spring soon into summer and uh, it's a good time for training, you know, taking your training outdoors. I know that's always something I enjoyed uh, with your classes. So I'm sure that's, that's starting to happen there uh, at the school. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. And I, I think that that's a, that's a really important thing for folks. I mean, we can get caught up in, always training in one particular place. So, you know, folks that uh, always train in the park, I mean, that's it's good because the terrain is uneven and things like that. That's awesome. Uh, but, you know, how often do they take it into the tree line, right, and work with natural obstacles or things that might trip up their feet? Uh, how often do they go into a parking lot and, and get between cars or at the corner of the fenders where you have that kind of uh, – uh, kind of a, a plus sign kind of thing you're looking straight down on things or you know just or or even inside right uh, putting some obstacles uh in the way and, and, uh training as though you were in your living room or bedroom or in a uh, restroom at a restaurant or something like that right so mm-hmm. um, same thing with folks that have a have a, a regular place uh, whether it's a dojo or a community group with a training or whatever right take it outside Get near a set of steps, get near a hillside, get near a curb so that you have to practice stepping up and down and keeping your torso uh, upright and level uh, while your feet might be at different um, different levels, you know. So uh, I'm always a big fan of that stuff because you never know where you're going to be when things might happen. Uh, you know, and, and for the traditionalists to say, well, you know, that's not in the scrolls. Uh, there's a lot of things that aren't in the scrolls, right? Ink and paper was at a premium, so... Most of this stuff was passed on via Kuden, uh, hence the name of our, our show, right? So uh, rather than it just being written down in the dead show or the monkey mono or whatever, it's just, uh, I've seen some of the scrolls. <laughs> it's like cliff notes. So mm. uh, it's very different. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's a, it's, a, it's a great kind of segue into the first part of our show today um, where we're going to address uh, a Facebook question we got uh, from Matt, Matt Davis. So thank you, Matt. We won't even go into the dojo joke about Matt. 
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> everybody, everybody gets to be mad at least once in the in the dojo, right? That's the one. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, he, he he raised a great question uh, for us to address on today's show, and you know, he was asking about ancient versus modern training methods, and you know, that kind of brings us. We're just kind of hitting on that, and we can get into that more. I know you've got a great program, Ninja no Hachimon, that you can tell us a little bit about. That really jumps into some of this, but, you know, he was, he was curious, as I think many students out there are, especially if you start searching around piecemeal online and maybe you're drawn to this ninjutsu idea, well, you're going to get a lot of different things from, you know, as we talk about kind of technique historians and collectors to, you know, uh, self-defense. And so where does that, where does that kind of middle ground of appropriateness uh, for, for the right kind of training come in and, and where, what happened to the ancient methods and, how are they now modernized? So I think there's a lot there. Yeah, uh, there is a lot, and we can't cover it in an hour, so um, I won't try. But uh, what I what I would say is that uh, you know just take a little bit of a look at history, and uh, you don't have to have copies of the Bonsen Chukai or the Shiminki or any of these uh, ancient texts. I mean, if you did, what you'd see is you know there's um, there's some things in there that would be that would, we might call timeless, right? They're applicable. Uh, no matter what. And so we're talking about things like stealth and, and uh, ways of moving so that you blend into your surroundings or so you reduce noise or uh, ways to use your hearing or uh, ways to see in the dark and things like that that, that are just timeless, right? If, regardless of whether you're holding a sagio, you know, the cord from your, from your uh, the, the sword scabbard uh, in your teeth while balancing the sword scabbard out on the boshi of your sword, uh, as you probe the darkness, right, so that, uh, you know, if you run into somebody uh, who's just super trained, that they could snap away, grab a sword, draw it, and kill you. Uh, so, you know, here's this thing, right? It doesn't have to be this way, uh, but the, the idea behind it is I'm putting something way out there in front of me, so if I bump someone, uh, what he's going to do is he's going to slash at the scabbard, and now I know where he is, and I can just, them in the dark kind of thing, right? So it's, it was just a little, little technology thing. But while a lot of folks get caught up in, in those little tricks, um, what we really need to look at is the same thing as always, right? On one side, we have the problem to be solved, right? So is the warrior that we're talking about, are they protecting the family and the homestead, or are they a, uh, an operative, right, that's out collecting information on an enemy area, right? Uh, or... Uh, whatever, right? So what's the what's the problem to be solved? And then on the other side, uh, it's kind of like a double-edged sword, right? On the other side is what's the technology of the day, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't have big lighters, okay? So carrying a flame or carrying a heat source is very different back then. I mean, we could make these things up as a neat little cultural uh, uh and a piece of entertainment or something like that, or just a little bit of study to kind of understand it a little bit more and how it might work. But it's like being an archaeologist, right? It's neat, but that archaeologist probably carries a big lighter in their pocket uh, should they need a flame source now. They're not going to be carrying around a 13th, 14th century uh, fire starter, right? Right. Um, you know, and, and I mean, there's, there's other things, like I said, that are timeless where, you know, you use the bow and drill method or Whatever. If you do want, if you do need to start a fire without that, but you know they had these devices where they would take the coals from today's fire or last night's fire and put it in this you know casing 
and they could carry that throughout the day um, so that – and here's the theory, right? So they could start the next fire more easily because they're carrying these embers, right? But how often would the embers have gone out, you know? So they still had that yeah. backup uh, things, right? So, yeah, technology, and then where technology kind of ran out on a day-to-day basis, what you see in the Bontanchukai and the Shininki is how they came up with these things. Um, so they literally had to be inventors and innovators and, and things like that, right? In today's world, I don't know that you need that as much um, because we have these things already, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, the training historically, again, depended on, what it was that they were being trained for, what they were prepping for, uh, and things like that, and then what did they have available? Um, now, historically, again, you know, we, when we look at the uh, the Ninja no Hachimo, that course that's put out, and you can do a search on, on the Internet. You don't need to, to get my course for the Ninja no Hachimo to get the basic list of eight things. What the course does is really go into these things and then look at how that would translate into the 21st century, right? So... Uh, Historically, what you're looking at is, uh, you know, def- uh, defend, defense and combat uh, using the, the tools of the day that were modified or what I, what I call ninjanized, right, uh, hmm. and uh, applied against the attacks of the day, right? So if you look at the, at the ninja no Hachimon, right, you'll see some passive things um, like uh, – Deception and manipulation. You'll see Nijno uh, Chomo, which is just study, right? Educating yourself to the, to the uh, highest degree possible, right? Uh, and then you'll see, obviously, combat tools, Nijno Ken, which is the, uh, the sword, Nijno uh, Sojutsu, which is spear, uh, use of fire, things like that, right? But uh, what you don't see on there is like long staff, right? Well, why are we doing uh, spear, but we're not doing long staff. Well, see, we have to understand that there was a full range of warrior skills that were already, already going on, right? Um, and then the spear, the way the ninja used it, uh, was kind of a, an a- adaptation. So we're using spear, but the spear was also a tool, right, for, for climbing, for measuring distances, all kinds of things. They had all these uh, crazy um, modifications. Okay? But if you look at the warrior skills today and the way combat was run, the young new uh, trainees, the young new soldiers, whether they were samurai or they were ninja, whatever you want to call them, uh, they were trained in yadi and uh, naginata first, these long-range things, right? We're talking about poles that are um, at the shortest seven feet and at the longest well over nine, ten, eleven feet long. Uh, depending on whether they had a blade out there or they had, well, they were always a blade. Uh, the ninja, the uh, samurai spear isn't designed for throwing. It's designed for cutting, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so the whole idea was to be able to reach out and cut and kill someone in one strike, in one, uh, one engagement. And that doesn't mean necessarily that maybe you tag them once, but you thrust the spear and the ideal, that's why one of our basics is, you cut across the hand at the wrist junction so it disables the hand off of the person's sword or their weapon, and but your angling already has you lined up with their cross-side shoulder joint, okay? So let's say you tag the right wrist, 
as you slide across that right wrist and disconnect those those tendons and things that uh, disable that hand, the, the spear is already running right into um, the left shoulder pocket, which disables the left arm, right? And then on retraction, which you're cutting the, the weapon out of the, the wound, you're not retracting and then stabbing again. Uh, you know, it draws back across the side of the neck. So you're only doing one engagement, but you're tagging three things on his body. But either way, even if you don't do that, you're reaching out, poking him in the in the uh, the throat, or uh, a really decent favorite uh, uh, tactic was to stab right into the ankle joint. It's one of the first things you guys ever learned about, um, even with long staff, right? Go after mm-hmm. the top of the foot or into the ankle because once you pop those uh, those bones that are in there that look like little nuggets, right? Once you pop them, um, the person loses all stability. So uh, the idea is on a battlefield, you don't have to kill somebody, but if you take them off their feet um, and they can't get up, right, somebody else can be running along behind and stab them or they'll just bleed out where they are, right? You don't get into prolonged engagements. So the early training with the young guys was with these long arms, right? And then uh, it was... Uh, and I know how we, you know, we see these uh, everybody running around with swords and all that. And it's not that the young guys wouldn't have had swords, but the swords would have been seen as a backup weapon. It yeah. was the uh, the uh, horsemen, you know, the, the uh, higher ranked samurai because they're on horses and all that, or just the older guys that survived longer. But now, because of wounds and, and age and all that, they're slowing down. They're the ones where their primary weapon would have been the sword. Right, mm-hmm. so they're just—it's not that they don't—they can't use the spear. It's just that it's an age thing, right? It's just range is closer, all that stuff, right? So, so everything that you learned with the spear and the the uh, the naginata, the halberd, right? That's why our sword stuff looks the way it does, or the way it's supposed to look when it's correct, because sword is based on spear, and then that's why our kajitsu looks the way it does. Because as you aged and you were now protecting the homestead, you had even smaller weapons or you were of a rank where you went to visit the shogun, right? So you left your sword at the door, but you were allowed to carry a wakazashi or a kanto or something because of self-defense. But, I mean, now you're way, way outgunned, right? Because all the shoguns or the emperor's uh, retainers and protectors, they're all carrying full blades. Right, so what they did was to, to make sure that these people were safe. Was they just made sure that all visitors, uh, by honor, to help you protect your honor, you were allowed to carry a weapon for your own defense. But it would be like taking, you know, having a, a clip knife or a K bar going up against somebody with a katana. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but either way, either again through rank or through age, uh, you're now down to small arms or being unarmed. Right. So the, that's why the unarmed stuff looks like looks the way it does because our unarmed stuff is based on sword and spear, right? So uh, just, you know, understanding how that kind of stuff works, uh, understanding that, you know, the spear, the naginata, because of range, would have been your preferred weapon. So we're looking at between, again, between 7 and, let's say, 11 feet, so average of 9 feet, right, with a weapon. Um, so long staff, so the bow, the joe, the hanbo, the shobo, Right, really tiny things, right? Are all now what if things, right? Because on the ancient scrolls, um, the hanbo is listed way up in higher level kind of things uh, because it's seen as a what if weapon, right? What if this thing gets cut down and now you you have this stick in your hand that's about this long, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or the 
Joe is a three-quarter staff. So you have more stick, right? The long staff, it got cut just below the, the blade, the working end of things, right? So all these things are what ifs. But today, right, everything works in, in reverse, right? The training today starts with Taizu, right? And then starts to add on weapons. And then, you know, you get to these long things. A lot of people don't even do the longer things, uh, which I think is, is a, is a shame. Uh, not because of the cultural things, right? I mean, we have them and it came in, but, uh, and we're, one of our topics today is going to be taking a look at, you know, defending, uh, at, uh, you know, on the job, but at the same time, it could be in your home or whatever. So, you know, we have brooms, we have shovels, we have uh, push brooms, we have, uh, hose or ice choppers or whatever, you know, that they're laying around the house, right? So by not training with certain things, or not training with certain things outside of the context of, you know, I'm doing long staff training, so I only work with an official wooden long staff of a certain shape. Well, why, right? Do you have them propped up against the corner in every room or office that you, you know, that you uh, live in? I mean, it just, what we're looking at is ultimately being able to pick up something that is like the weapon, uh, I mean, that's why I did that one article and that whole lesson on the five weapon types so that people are looking at classifications of weapons and not specific fixed things, right? So uh, so today, the, the biggest difference that I see uh, between then and now is, you know, then this stuff was born right out of the Sengoku Jedi War in States period and before that. So constant warfare, so... The, the tactics and the and the, the curricula would be based on training people uh, to defend against you know the, the the enemy on the battlefield, and even if you know if that's not the case, we're uh, we're you know disguising ourselves and living as farmers. Uh, you know the walking stick of the day was six feet long, not the cane kind of you know hip height kind of things that we have now, right? Um, it was a utility. Everybody knew how to use one of these things because it was used to fend off wild animals, snakes. It was used to go to the well and carry buckets of water back. It was used again as an old, you know, as a, a, a walking stick for old folks. Uh, look at any of old, um, old Japanese or Chinese paintings, right, of an elderly person walking along uh, where they're crippled and they need uh, a walking stick, right? It's it's a long staff. It's not it's not a cane like we inherited from the European tradition. Right, she's very yeah. different, right? So, um, how is it different? It's different because the entire culture and and the entire uh, uh, environment and, and set of needs was different, right? The technology was different, right? So, instead of sending flaming balls of phosphorus-loaded uh, uh, paper or mud or something like that to start fires or to you know have a missile that you could throw at somebody or instead of using bow and arrow, right, today we have handguns, right? And it's, you've got a quicker rate of fire, faster reload, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't, that doesn't diminish the need or practicality of those other skills or those other weapons, but technology has changed, right? So so that's one side of the, so, the sword, right? The nature of warfare has changed. The, the types of attacks that we have to deal with have, has changed, right? Uh, yeah. The fact that we have less and less open areas where you're going to encounter people, right? We don't live in in spread out villages, 
that have miles and miles and miles of, you know, forest or open land or whatever that, that people are traveling back and forth on, you know, because they walk on roads or, or they have carts or whatever. Um, we have densely packed cities, and even small towns are this way, right? And you don't have to you don't have to drive more than a couple of minutes before you're in the next small town. And if you are out in farmland, middle of Illinois or something like that, where you do, are driving an hour to the next town, there's not a whole lot of people you're going to encounter between point A and point B. So it's not the same. It's not the same uh, thing. It's not the same yeah. setup. So. Uh, I would say, you know, I, I really enjoy a lot of the Kobudo training I've gotten to do, you know, with you at like camps and, uh, but what's always come out of that is by, by kind of going back in time, we get a good sense of like how to take the, the, the essence of what that technique was or what that weapon was and bring it forward. You know, a great example is, uh, I always have Mitsubishi on me. Now I'm not walking around with the little eggs we learned how to fill with powder and all of that good stuff. Uh, but I've always got change in my pocket or a handkerchief. Absolutely. I learned yeah. from the Kobudo training that it's the sight remover. It's that taking of sight by a means of something, uh, that then opens up the ability to escape, disappear, put a technique on or, or engage. So, you know, the Kobudo training needs to be, uh, something that helps you link it to the current and, and not just, well, it's fun. We're going to, you know, make some, some smoke powder, you know? So, yeah, and then, you know, there's, there's examples of this throughout the, throughout the training, even what most people would call traditional training. You know, one of the first lessons that I learned about Kosei no Koma, right? You know, Kosei, yes. I, I yeah. Most people know it, right? It comes out of the Kukusin school. And uh, one of the first lessons I learned about it was that, um, historically, way back when it was, when that Kamai was initially developed by the Kukushin school, it didn't look like that. Right? It actually looked closer to, uh, a Bobi or Sagan kind of hybrid thing. Um, and then as the armor changed, then so did the Kamai, right? Because, um, you know, you've got these big sode shoulder squares, right? Uh, on the armor that most people are used to seeing, right? But right. prior to that, right, Kamakura era, that kind of thing, right, uh, the, the armor, uh, and you saw that when we went up to uh, Togakushi and when we went to the uh, museum up there, right? Uh, one part of the museum is the ninja house, but there's this whole other part that had, um, you know, things that were made out of the uh, the grass that grows up there and all that. So um, there were armor, and it, all, it looked like inverted baskets, right, that went on top of a person. Right. So the way the armor was worn and the parts of the armor was very different from what most people think of when they think of samurai armor, right, with these these overlapping uh, kind of uh, uh, tiles and uh, the, the uh, braided and laced together uh, shoulder shields and things like that that were designed to protect the lacings uh, and the joints between the ude, the uh, kote, the, mm-hmm. the arm sleeve kind of thing, and the, and the breastplate kind of thing, right? So here are these things, right? Well... If you take up the original Kosei with this newer armor, right, when the armor changed, when, if you take up a, 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 a Kosei that looked more like a Sagan or a Bobi, right, that Sobe would slide off your shoulder and fall down behind you. So you lose the protective um, benefit of that piece. It's only when you bring your arm up in a certain way, and that's actually how I learned to do Kosei correctly. We actually 
took the time, you know, we have it here at the dojo, one of our guys made up a couple of suits of armor, um, right. made it out of other material, right? But, so we didn't need armor armor. What we needed was something that was functionally correct so that we could put this stuff on and take up these positions and know whether we were doing it right or not, right? Mm. So by taking up a kose correctly, now the sode lays on top of the upper arm and puts it, and it's in a protective position. It's where it's supposed to be. And so that's how, that's one of the ways that you know that your kamai is correct, right? So uh, this development has been going on for a long time. Uh, the funny thing that I think is going on now is that um, uh, people are trying to latch on to, you know, this set thing. Um, you know, but even even in classes in, in Japan, Hatsumi Sensei will talk about, you know, a certain type of strategic thinking or, you know, based on his research, right, uh, there were things that were hinted at. So, you know, by exploration and by trial and error or whatever, you come to these understandings and you work it out, right? Uh, but he'll look at you and say, did they do this exact thing back in ancient Japan? I don't know. I wasn't there. But based on the teachings and the lessons and, and the knowledge that was passed on to me, I can look back at these other things as references and, you know, can't get an idea. But I wasn't there. I didn't live during that time. So, you know, you do the best you can. Um, but to, to assume that you know how these people lived historically and you're going to take your 20th, 21st century knowledge, uh, cultural references, and all those kind of things, and apply it to this other thing, you know, that's that's so foreign and so alien. I mean, Hatsumi Sate, who's Japanese, and is teaching something that is uniquely Japanese, right, mm-hmm. will look at you and say, I don't know, I wasn't there. Then, you know, how can we do, this? How can we do anything different, right? But what we can do is we can, as Matt suggested here, look at the historical thing and look at the modern thing, and, and we can look at the differences, but we can also look at it from the perspective of, okay, Historically, right, and technologically, this is how they thought about solving the problem. So this is how this came into being, and this is what they came up with, okay? So we can learn to think more critically. We can think, we can develop an innovator's mindset. We can, we can learn to be a problem solver rather than a museum curator, like, you know, this is the way it's always been done, so this is correct, and this is the way I'm going to do it. Yeah, I know, but why was it? Why has it always been done that way? Why didn't it die out somewhere? Why is Tagaki Ocean stuff, you know, infused in all of the other eight lineages, right? Where did the schools cross over, right? Mm. Why is Tagaki Ocean now using uh, Kukishinden staff? There's still some unique Tagaki stuff in there, but... Primarily, there was a point in history where you know, these two guys got together and one walked away going, hmm, well, your bow stuff is way better than ours, so from now on, we're going to do that, right? Right. And the other one walked away going, hmm, your taijutsu is better than this, so from now on, right? So there's just this this thing, right? Um, but, you know, back in the mid to late 80s, early 90s, there was this big push. As soon as people found out that there really were scrolls, there really were kata, um, everything just kind of changed where it went from Hatsumi Sensei really passing things on via Kuden, right, uh, right. to 
you know, um, and, and approaching it from the perspective of, you know, you want to be able to apply this stuff to debt, right? To a, almost a classical, uh, martial art perspective where I've got to collect all the names of the scrolls in each lineage and I've got to collect all the names of the kata on each of those because if I don't have those, then I don't have the art. But Hatsumi said they said over and over again, you can have one kata and if you understand the Kionapo principle, you can literally rediscover all the kata on all the scrolls, right? You don't need more than one, right? He could write an entire thick book on one kata. Right. Right? All these things, right? You don't need to um, you don't need to uh, uh, you don't need to um, uh, train with shoot again or uh, spear or whatever. Doing so allows you to understand certain things. Like I was taught that when I got my uh, shoot again down, right, that my strikes would be better, right. Mm. When I uh, when I got my uh, use of the Kyokutsu Shoge, where you do that little loop thing with the rope, right, my knife hand would become better. Uh, those kind of things, right? So that in and of itself is what made me pick up these other things that, to me, had no purpose in today's world. I mean, you know, it kind of stands out as an oddity, and it's going to draw the, the, the attention of the police and all that, because you're carrying weird things. But you know, I was introduced to this art from the perspective of uh, long arms, right? Uh, just now you've got gardening tools and, and long things like that, whether it's a shower rod or a shower curtain rod or, you know, whatever, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The Dick Shogi was introduced to me as an example of you've got this weapon that could be used to stab or cut or whatever, and it's tied to a long cord with something on the end of it. So, you know, back in the day, we didn't have modular or cellular phones, so the idea was to tie a telephone receiver with its cord to the end of a butcher knife or a, or a, uh, uh, a screwdriver or something like that, or yeah. tying a mechanic's drop light to a, uh, to a screwdriver. That's how you guys were introduced to it, because that's how I was introduced to it. But I don't, I don't see anybody going in that direction, so to speak, right? I don't see uh, – I don't see – what I see are two dividing lines. I see one dividing line – or one side of the thing where everybody's trying to move around like Hatsumi said they, uh, where they have done little or nothing going through the process that he went through to get to where he is. So there's little to no form, right? They're just mm-hmm. trying to duplicate this guy, right? Uh, and then on the other side, there's the, no, 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 this is the way it's written in the scrolls, blah, blah, blah. This is, you know, this is the way you do it. You learn from both sides, but kind of like the Taizokai, Kongokai, uh, ultimate reality, conventional reality conversation you and I had a couple of days ago, right? Yeah. The personal reality in the middle is finding that happy medium. Just like when you train with kata and then you train with waza, so you've got this free-form, rondori kind of thing, and then you've got this kata thing. What you're looking to do is train with these things, um, but bring them together until there's this overlap, right, to where... There's freedom to your kata, but there's also structure and reference points to your uh, free movement, right? So mm-hmm. you're looking for is a happy medium. But anyway, the, the difference between the two, uh, they couldn't be more different as far as approach because of the needs. But, you know, again, when we're looking at things, things we need to look at it from the perspective of 
what's the problem that needs to be solved and what's the technology available. And if you need something that's not available, what can you come up with? I mean, that's the ninja mindset. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. if, you know, if, if we're going to only do it the way it's always been done, that's the samurai mindset. I mean, the, the, these two were, they could, again, the cultures couldn't be more different, right? The samurai's approach was, if it was good enough for my father, my father's father, blah, 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 all the way back, then it's good enough for me. Right. And from the ninja's perspective, anything that can improve our quality of life, our ability to produce uh, results and success with less effort, all those kind of things, right, was was okay, right? So you had the innovators on one side, and you had the cultural preservers on the other side. Right. right. So, so when the ninja were described as a counterculture, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about having, you know, this elite military force in the samurai or the bushi, and then these farmers who were ninja. Well, some of them may have lived as farmers, but hell of a disguise, huh? That's mm-hmm. a good deal. Right. So, um, yeah, it's just very different. So when we talk about counterculture, we're talking about a, a difference in, in philosophy. So. What we need to do is, is learn from things. Um, I, I don't know, you, well, you've read some of the books because they're all mandatory reading, but uh, in uh, Stephen Hayes' writings, and regardless mm-hmm. of what people think of them, right? he was the guy who collected this, this information uh, originally and started disseminating. So, you know, whatever. So anyway, um, uh, in his O'Hara series, right, there's these different volumes. Okay. Yeah. At the beginning of each chapter, there's this little, uh, there's this little poem. You've seen those, right? They're just, yeah, these little things, right? Well, he actually wrote a book a long, long time ago, um, way back in the early stages. It was called uh, Wisdom from the Ninja Village of the Cold Moon. Oh, I and just picked it up and I haven't actually, read it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So um, somebody stole mine a long time ago and I have to replace it. But there for a while, they were you know, people wanted such exorbitant amounts, so I've got to replace mine. But anyway. Um, the, the long poems, the actual full poems are in there. And that's what that is. They're all poems. Hmm. And then what you see at the beginning of the chapters in the O'Hara series are just these little segments out of the poems. Okay. Hmm. Um, but it was a really cool thing, right? But anyway, um, uh, so there are these little things, but one of the, uh, and I, I think it's in one of the poems, but it might have been in the introduction to the chapter that I'm thinking of, but I can picture him climbing on the side of a wall. Anyway, and it, mm-hmm. the, the quote is one of the most one of the most traditional things I could do today is to not walk around in 16th century pantaloons and carry a samurai sword and things like that. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, ninja would not be dressed that way today. You'd stand out. Right? The ninja's thing was to blend in, right, and be able to get things done without drawing attention to yourself. So, you know, um, but that's, that goes for everything, right? One of the most traditional things I could do today is not wear, you know, uh, not insist on dressing where I'm wearing a hakama and then I'm going to tie the individual pieces to my leg. Uh, we make pants. <laughs> We've been wearing those for a long time. But if you think about what the ninja did to be able to work and to be able to maneuver in these things, um, during a period where the hakama and the kimono was the the clothing of the day, right? Is they literally they lashed these these split the split skirt to their legs, and in effect created pants in a culture that had no pants, right? So the the, the same thing crosses over for 
for everything else too, right? They're, you know, they're, they're hiding uh, a gun, right? A flintlock pistol in the shape of a short sword, a very, very crude short sword, right? So when the person expects that I'm going to draw a blade, you know, he's going to be pretty smug and overconfident, right? So how can I apply that kind of thinking in today's world? So this is the universal stuff, not what it looks like. Right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to answer Matt's question, the, the, the primary difference is in the is in the the flow of the material, right? People would have started off with long-range weapons and then moved systematically, if they survived long enough, moved systematically to where they were masters of types of Today, you're expected to develop, to develop a decent proficiency with kaijutsu and then add weapons to those things as needed, right? And then the weapons help you develop your kaijutsu better. So the focus today, because we live in times of peace, is on, you know, you've got lots of time to develop your kaijutsu. You can add these other things if you need to or want to or you have an interest in that direction or whatever. So the training is based on, and then if you look at the way the Bujinkan has changed, over the last couple of decades, um, the, the training is really based around, you know, uh, we, we highly suggest that you do it this way, but, uh, yeah, if you don't want to do it that way, that's okay. And that's the, that's the mindset for a lot of people. Hmm. So, you know, uh, back in the day, you wouldn't have had that choice. Right? And you also right. wouldn't have had to worry about, you know, nobody's going to sue the teacher if he beats you down because you're just noncompliant or, you know, you want to do things your own way? Fantastic. You can't live with us because you're going to get us all killed. So you need to go somewhere else. Okay? So uh, it's just it was a different mindset, right? I mean, yeah. Look at look at the hardship that must have been going on in, just in the in the mountain range where Togakushi is. You've been up there with me. I mean, those yeah. fucking mountains. I mean, it's, if they're trees and bamboo and all kinds of things, they look like grass fields, except they're damn near damn near vertical in some mm. places. Yeah. Right. So, um, well, they were farmers. Well, yeah, um, they had to grow their own food up there. So um, they're not <laughs> shipping it in from anywhere, right? So uh, anyway, so yeah, the, the primary difference was in historically how they, how, what they were up against, and, and the technology that they had, and uh, the fact that it was a literally a warrior society, and there were wars popping up left and right. There were bandits on the on the the roadways and I mean some of these things cross over today but you know yeah. uh, so the, the, well, the art today has been presented as a self-defense method that grows toward the historical um, or at least that's how it was introduced right uh, but you know today you can pretty much do whatever you want back in the day you would have had a very specific need for very specific skills and you wouldn't have had a choice you either learn those skills so that you can survive or you die. Today, people can kind of pick and choose as they want. It's a, it's a cultural oddity. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's I think, a, a great way to kind of summarize all of that. Uh, so thank you, Matt, for that question. That was, that was really great. And it kind of brings yeah, us great now to, to kind of our second part of today's show, uh, and, and very much Which is still about related. the dangers of today. And yeah, still related. Uh, this incident that happened, uh, it was the end of last week, beginning of this week, but uh, a workplace violence incident. This was in Orlando. You can Google this. This is recent news to the time of, of our live show here. Uh, a, a ex-military 
a person who was working at a factory who made awnings. They make awnings at this factory, uh, who was fired months back, I think in April, and decided to enact vengeance on his former employers and just here recently wandered into the, the place of his former employee and killed five people and then himself. Uh, and, and, you know, sadly, this is something we talk about. It's like, well, you know, we've heard this news how many times? This isn't the first time. Uh, and so I think for many people, you know, listening to, into the show, this probably is the kind of thing that makes you go, hmm, yeah, what can we be training to protect ourselves from these incidents? And I know, sir, you, you give lots of talks uh, to corporations and businesses and, you know, hospitals about workplace violence and what can be done to, to not only be aware, but to uh, defend yourself in, in a situation that's become somewhat of a norm these days. So I would love for you to talk about that. Well, it has become a norm. And before I talk about the, the Orlando incident, because people often think that these things are, you know, they, they happen. Sometimes they're, they're, you know, there's a couple of them. But, you know, these are pretty much isolated incidents. We feel pretty safe and all that. Um, yeah, people really aren't getting the gist of things because um, my, my, I'm not even making it as a joke, but my, 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 typical statement these days is that unless an incident like Orlando occurs, it's not enough for the news to even get it closer than page three and a little blur kind of thing, right? So, you know, as a part of that incident, you find out that he actually, like, punched a guy in the back of the head like three years ago, and then he ran charges, nothing ever happened or whatever. So this guy has a history of things, right? So. Um, and please don't take that to be the average veteran because me and my friends don't go walking around punching people or threatening to kill them. We don't bottle up our our uh, vengeance or whatever. If anything else, you're going to know that I would really not want to be in your space. Um, you know, we can't be friends, that kind of thing, because I'm not bottling things up and walking on eggshells to where I get to the point where I want to punch you. And then somebody wants to say, well, see, all these vets, they were trained to kill. We shouldn't let them back in, you know, into society uh, no, this guy was, mm. he, he has anger management problems and he probably has for a long, long time. Um, don't make this a, a military thing, right? But anyway, um, what I want to start off with is to let people know that um, these are not isolated things, okay? Um, there are seven to nine people killed in the United States every week from acts of workplace violence. Most of them are in management. And there's another 33,000 that are assaulted, beaten, raped, or otherwise attacked, but a death did not occur per Mm. week. And this is not just the United States. This is worldwide. Now, the statistics I just gave you were the United States. But this is a worldwide epidemic. Um, There are conferences. I just spoke spoke in one in Dublin in October, right, Mm. Uh, that uh, just for the medical field, right, Uh, this has become such a prolific thing all over the place that um, this is not a U.S. thing. This is not a, well, if we didn't have guns, it wouldn't happen. Uh, yeah, no, a couple of months ago in Florida, uh, a contractor that was brought into, I don't know what they were doing in this manufacturing plant. They were doing some renovations, electrical stuff and all that. Um, he beat a regular employee of, of the business uh, almost to death. No, he did beat him to death. Uh, he beat him with a crowbar or a piece of pipe or a conduit or something like that. Right, so don't give me the gun thing. Right, it's just these right. things happen a lot. Right, so um, as a matter of fact, the FBI has uh, has issued a statement a bunch of years ago 
that the workplace is probably the most uh, dangerous place or the most violent place that employees could find themselves. Because most people know to steer away from the dark, the, you know, the, the bad alley in town, sure. the bad area down, unless yeah. they're, you know, just they choose to or or have that their life condition doesn't allow them for whatever reason, right, to move from those areas that are, are known to be bad. Um, people know to steer away from those things. But we go to workplaces, right? And in our workplaces, we typically don't know the entire life story of everybody that we work with. Um, there are five different attacker types. When most people think of workplace violence, they think of somebody that they work with going uh, postal. And there's right, a term, right? right? Yeah. Uh, which is really funny because back in the 70s, there were a couple of these incidents, and there have been a couple along the way. But in the grand scheme of totality, postal workers are not <laughs> the ones you got to worry about, right? But because right. this term was, was uh, come up with by a reporter way back in – Maybe it was 84. I don't know. I, I have to do so. Uh, but, uh, you know, that, it's become this thing that people go postal, right, uh, which is ironic because uh, you're more likely to go uh, or you're more likely to encounter the aggravated patient or visitor in a hospital uh, doing this thing. So maybe we should call it going patient or maybe <laughs> call it going family member, whatever, because a nurse is right. 12 and a half times, almost 13 times, more likely to be assaulted on the job than wow. a uh, police officer, right? Wow. So, yeah, so this is, again, this is not an isolated incident, but it speaks heavily on uh, or, or against a lot of the myths and just bad theories and, and bad belief systems that people have. You know, this company, uh, you know, looking at it, and I'm sure they thought, you know, we don't need anything like this. I mean, who's going to do anything here? We make awnings, right? Yeah. Um, you know, everybody gets along here. Right. Sure. Uh, so I don't have to worry about it here. Everybody gets along. Um, you know, okay, but again, most people think of your coworkers going ballistic, but there are actually five different attacker types. Um, mm. And current employees or coworkers are only one of them. Yeah. This guy speaks of a second one, which is former employees. Okay? Right. Uh, I just I shared that thing on my, on my timeline and wanted to remind everyone that out of sight, out of mind which is what most people do when they get rid of somebody. You kick them out of your life or you kick them out of, uh, you know, your, your business or you get them thrown in jail or whatever, right? Um, most people immediately, oh, fantastic, right? And they go right. into an out-of-state out uh, or out-of-mind, uh, how does that work? Um, uh, out of, <laughs> I just lost out of it. Sight, out of um, sight, out of mind, right? There you yeah. go, out of sight, out of mind, right? Yeah. They go into this mode when it should be out of sight but not out of danger. Yeah. Right? Because you don't know what this – when a manager fires somebody or uh, gives them a write-up or whatever, right, they don't know what this person's life is like. They don't know what what's going on. I mean, a, very often somebody will, will have a – you know, their life just goes into a crapper, and what they start thinking about is when did all this get started? And if you're the litmus test for when it got started and everything went downhill from you, then you become the target. Right. right? Uh, so there's, you know, there's been things like this all over the place. But anyway, so here's this one, right? Uh, there's also uh, uh, visitors or customers, okay? In the case of hospitals, whatever, they're called patients, right? Uh, but they're outsiders that are, have been allowed to come in 
So they could be anybody from somebody coming in to fill out a work application uh, and, you know, it's going through the, 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 the uh, process, right? As a matter of fact, I've been I'm working with a client now and had them change one of their HR policies where uh, originally they were offering the job to someone, but it was conditional on the person passing a urine test. So here they've given the person the job. They've called them up and said, hey, you have the job. We just have to do the urine test, right? Mm -hmm. So maybe the person thinks he can get away with it, maybe not or whatever, but this guy could have been out of work for how long? He could be on the verge of bankruptcy. We don't know any of that stuff, right? We don't know what his tolerance for frustration or anything like that is. And here the phone call is, I got the job. He goes in relation mode, but now there's this condition where he might fail this, and he knows he's going to fail it or whatever, right? And now you just did this thing, right? So my suggestion that they put into place was you make that a part of the employment process. We don't yeah. make any final decisions until after these things come back, right? So you're not, you know, what you're doing is setting up something to cause people to de- disqualify themselves from yeah. the running, and you don't offer them a present and then take it back kind of thing. Right. So yep. it's just a little tweak. Right. But, uh, you know, a couple of managers along the way, I talk about former employees, think, I don't worry about the people that I fired. What is their no. life like? Where, no. you know, where are they now? What's going on? Right. Um, and if it is bad, right, who are they blaming for that? Right. So, I mean, when this guy came in in Orlando, right, this was execution style stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of those people were shot in the head. A couple of people were shot multiple times, which is just like a stabbing where, you know, he just unloaded, right? Yeah. Um, he also carried knives, too, so let's not make it just a gun thing because he prepared for possibly running out of ammo um, while, you know, he knew people were going to be running and scattering and stuff like that. So yeah. what if he didn't do what he meant to do before he was done? And then the other thing, too, is, you know, a lot of folks – rely, just like they rely on the law too much to protect them. Nice people, good people rely on the law for protecting them against bad people, when the reality is that the laws are put in place for the lowest common denominator in a society, right? The ones who just aren't going to be good neighbors, right? And they're just going to do whatever they want. That's what the law's there for, okay? But then they want to hide behind the law like, you know, they're going to cross the street when a car's coming up without making sure that the car's actually going to stop. I've heard people like this. A friend will yell and say, hey, you stepped out in front of him. Oh, he's got a stop sign. He's got to stop. No, he didn't have to, right? It's a good idea if he doesn't want to fine or to go to jail or, you know, whatever. Yeah. But what if the guy's having a heart attack, right? He can't stop, whatever, okay? Mm-hmm. But we advocate a lot of these things. And it's the same thing in, in a lot of companies, right? Um, the fact is, in the United States, well over 70% of companies, um, many know that this is an important thing, but they don't have anything in place, yeah. nothing, for workplace violence, right? Um, and only 30%, the other 30% that had something, they only had things in place for prevention and for uh, reporting and punitive action afterwards. Right. So, you know, zero tolerance policies, banned weapons on site, all the stuff that the guy that's hot like this guy was, one, doesn't care about in the moment. 
didn't care what you're going to do to him because what this guy do when he, when he heard the alarms or when he heard the sirens come? Shot himself. That's when he shot himself. Right? It's the same yeah. thing that most of these people do. When the guys with the guns show up, the perpetrator kills themselves. Very rarely is he taken out by the police. Mm-hmm. Okay, so expecting them to comply or roll over or be you know for the law or the your zero tolerance policies or whatever to be the thing to stop them is just ignorant. And yeah. I don't mean well. Sometimes it's stupid, right? But it's just you know you're not thinking things through like a lot of people in their in their training, right? You just don't think about the big picture and what the needs are and the fact that you know the prowess you've developed was against the training partner of the dojo. Uh, how about if you train with somebody that really scares you, right? Somebody that uh, you know if you don't hit them correctly, they're not going to drop. How, you know, whatever, right? So it's a false sense of security, right? They banned weapons on site list. So on one side, this guy doesn't care about this. Mm-hmm. On the other side, he's counting on it. He's counting on it because he knows he's going to encounter no resistance whatsoever. So he can go in, do what he needs to do, and at least before he kills himself, has that, has that sense of satisfaction. So the things that we put in place that we think are going to deter somebody, they only deter somebody that doesn't want to feel the pain, frustration, or anguish of punishment. Okay? Somebody's going to do something worse to him than you will ever do to him, you're, you're at a loss, right? You're done. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I mean, this speaks of many things. I mean, they had no control points. Uh, doors were yeah. obviously open and, and unlocked and whatnot. He was able to enter through a back door. There's no control. There's no control of the facility. Um, I mean, in this one client that I'm working with, I literally started from the ground up. We took a, a, some people that worked Firewatch and turned them into a full-blown security department. Right? Wow. Um, we established uh, radio procedures. You know, the video cameras went up and all that. But that's all. You know, that's all passive stuff. And, yeah. and we have to separate that. We have to, we have to understand that video cameras allow security to see things but you still have response time. We have yep. to recognize that security cameras are only producing evidence for after the fact should it have to go to trial, right? It doesn't do anything in the moment when the bullets are flying or the fists are flying or whatever, okay? And, again, there's that false sense of security. Eight minutes on average in the United States for the police to respond to a call, and they may never show up. And, of course, you know, there's always the joke, well, they're sitting in a donut shop eating donuts. Well, as an ex-cop, I kind of take offense to that because um, that's, well, that's a big stereotypical kind of thing. Um, it's it's just not, not the, it's not the truth, right? Yeah. Could they be? Sure. Do you, do you actually know where that got started? Do you know no. who started the whole, or, or how the whole cops and donut shops kind no, of No, I don't think started? I've ever heard that, no. Oh, yeah. Well, historically, for the historians out there, it was started <laughs> by donut shop uh, owners, who had their donut shops open 24-7, and so they offered night shift cops free coffee and donuts nice. um, as a, you know, thank you kind of thing. But if you think about it, it was real ninja-like and real smart because instead yeah. of having to pay security overnight when they might be robbed, there's cops sitting in there having coffee and donuts, and it kept them safe. Yeah. So the cost of having security there was a couple of donuts and a cup of coffee as opposed to paying somebody for, uh, you know, working security. So it was actually started by the donut companies, 
And so, you know, they're stopping it. And more often than not, they're having coffee to stay awake, not donuts. The fact that it was a donut shop was that was a that's a throwback to who actually started this whole ball rolling. Right? <laughs> and got to tell you, late at night when you're freaking tired, um, I'm not going to turn down, you know, coffee or a soda or something like that to stay awake. I'm not going to yeah. do it. So. Well, anyway, I know, I know so, we can, uh, you know, keep really charging deep on this. I just want to time check here, but we've got about four or five minutes yeah, yeah. left. And if anybody's, yeah. you know, here on the call that's got a question about this topic, I want to give them a chance to, to chime in with their question. Okay. Well, let's see if anything comes in. But in the, in the process, I know it kind of went on a tangent. Well, it wasn't a tangent. I, I wanted to cover the whole scope of this thing. But yeah. again, looking at your tied to training, I talked about, you know, at the very beginning, we talked about uh, the kind of training that we did, whether we did outdoor days or we mm-hmm. put obstacles in the dojo uh, yeah. that you had to work around and all that. And I mentioned, you know, your living room or your bedroom or whatever. But what about your workspace, you know? What what kind of things have you already done to pre-plan? I don't care if this has ever happened in your place or not. The fact that it happens so often just means that it hasn't happened yet, Right. So what places have you already identified that will make good cover to protect you against gunfire, right? Uh, what will only conceal you, right? Hint, drywall is not cover. It doesn't stop a bullet. Cover yeah. is shielded. It'll stop a bullet. Concealment only hides you from, from view, right? Where, how will you exit, right? Where is the danger coming from? Is there an alert system to let you know not only that something is happening, but where it's happening, right? Because, you know, you can hear what sounds like gunfire, but is it coming from where you think it's coming from, or is there an echo or something like that that, based on the layout of the land or the layout of the building, it is actually coming from somewhere else, right? It's only a, it's only a, a, an echo or whatever, right? So, uh, but how will you get out? What will you do if you can't get out, right? What are the, what are the procedures from there? Um, if the company doesn't have it and you're not going to push for it because, well, you know, they've already made it clear that it's not important, um, is it important enough to you? Or is it only important enough to tailor your training and all that when you're going to put on fancy clothing, right, wrap this belt around your waist and go to the park or go to the dojo or go to the seminar or go to Japan or whatever, and that's that's the extent of your training. Right? You're just going to do these one-on-one kind of things, but you're not dealing with a, pro- a good probability. Right? So, anyway. So, do we have anybody else, uh, anything on? Anybody speaking up? I, know uh, I don't see a question up. yet. Uh, I see uh, Daryl checking in to, to just kind of say hello and that he's on, on the call, but uh, I did not, don't see any questions Excellent. at the moment. Okay. Well, it's always good to hear from Daryl. Daryl's... Uh, He's uh, over the uh, long-haul truck driver, and uh, he gets to come to the dojo every once in a while for a seminar or some training and all that. So it's uh, a good guy. Don't arm wrestle Daryl. Daryl like, arm wrestles kettlebells all the time. So uh, I I, I want to say uh, I think I've trained with Daryl. I think I trained with Daryl before I moved away. So, yeah, great. Yeah. The Daryl I'm thinking of. Hello, Daryl. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to call him an old guy because he'll, like, Rip my head off and poop in my neck or something. So anyway, <laughs> right. I try to balance out these serious topics with uh, yeah humor. But anyway, um, I don't see anything else. I know there's some folks that are on. Oh, you know what? I need to take things out of 
lecture mode and put it in your interactive mode. How about that? There we, we do go. have some folks on the call. So, excellent. All right, so if you're on the call, now you can speak up. <laughs> It'd be nice if we threw the right choices, right? <laughs> Any questions, comments, complaints? Anybody want to tell me that's full crap? I'm okay with that, too. People do it all the time. They use the internet as their, uh, their uh, being anonymous. Hey, who do we have on? Uh, this is uh, Lee from Georgia. Hey, Lee. Hey, Lee, how are you? Doing all right, guys. How you doing? Fine. Doing great. You're the Lee that's uh... making spoons these days? <laughs> uh, yes, sir. <laughs> Lee's uh, getting a little bit into the constructing uh, idea. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, so, What's up? Uh, you broke up there for a little bit. I didn't see it. You've uh, you've been on the on the call for for a bit here, Lee. Just uh, would love to hear your impressions of of kind of listening into the show. What's your thoughts? Uh, I loved it actually. It was a really good format, and uh, the uh, the uh, I don't know what you call it. The I, I know that um, uh, since, uh, um, gosh, we can get the words out. I know that the uh, workplace violence has been a lot of uh, kind of like your focus, and I'm glad to actually hear right. some stuff about it. I've looked online on your YouTube talking about the bully system and how you know there's these types of bullies and how to how to work with that. I've seen that and and uh, some of the other ones, but I haven't really seen anything um, as much detailed as this uh, call was uh, that talked about workplace violence. Um, well, I do I have, have a one question. Separate website uh, for that. You do? Okay. I didn't I did not know that there was another one. Yep. Um, I have a question. Is, is there a way to sort of, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, uh, set up a little ninja feng shui where things are set up in a certain way so that if an attacker does come in, it's difficult for them to work around? Are we talking about in a company or in your home or what? Uh, the answer would be yes. Uh, we can go with home. Okay. Okay. Well, that's fine. Um, you know, I talk about this quite often where I talk about how Hatsumi Sensei inherited uh, things from Takamatsu Sensei that, you know, weren't ninja operative kind of things. They were actually for leaders, right? And one of those things was how to build fortifications. So uh, what we want to think about is, uh, you know, what what allows you – freedom of movement, and freedom of movement uh, really gets developed out of habit patterns, right? I mean, most people don't like change because they have to refigure out their environment, but it only takes a little bit of time before that's just the layout and you figure out shortcuts and whatever. You know how things work. So, um, you know, in the beginning, it's going to be a little bit of a, uh, a nuisance, but it shouldn't last for more than a couple of days, right? But the whole idea is to set things up so that the uh, the intruder has to navigate things. So, you know, in your home, uh, you know, how do you lay out your living room so that there isn't a straight shot from the front door to, I don't know, the dining room or uh, to to somebody that's, that's there, right? Uh, uh, when you're, uh, I don't know, we have, we have guns in our culture and stuff like that, but even if it were rocks uh, or bow and arrow, right? Uh, I walk by folks, you know, people's homes when I'm just out on, on a nightly walk, 
and I look in, and, and there's the TV, and there's people sitting and stuff, and the way they're sitting, uh, they're not facing the window, right? Or even with peripheral vision, it'll pick up on the window. Or uh, they don't they don't have, we don't tend to use heavy drapes anymore that make things opaque, so people can't just look in at the lay of the land um, from this big window. Uh, you know, and it, therein lies another whole sense of false uh, security. People have deadbolts on doors that have big plate glass windows in them, right? Um, or they put deadbolts on a door that maybe has little or no windows in it, but there's a big bay window that somebody could smash and climb in. So we're only as safe as the bad guy lets us be, uh, you know, as it goes. But what I have, uh, you know, in, in my home, we have things kind of set up so that um, now I have, I have a home where there's actually a, uh, an entryway and a, and, a, and a hallway that actually goes back to the dining room. It's an old Victorian home. So the living room actually is off set, right? So you don't enter right into that. But what I have, uh, and my kids don't even know that these things are there uh, until they become a certain age, uh, I have a bow shooting above a door frame. I have uh, these little things that, that are literally invisible uh, to people, but it's right there within arm's reach, and it's a natural kind of thing uh, where, where it is. So uh, I just I just plant things. I mean, there's <laughs> things under uh, couch cushions. And, uh, there's a there's a boken that uh, uh, it's I picked up in Japan. It's really really heavy. Pay ten bucks for this thing, and it's really cool. It's got a nice wrapped handle and all that. Uh, but it's just kind of leaning up a, a up against a. Uh, a bookshelf around the corner in the living room. Uh, it's never made its way to the to the dojo, right? But um, you know, most people would think that. Well, that sounds kind of uh, you know unkempt, and your place must look like uh, I don't know Redneck Central or whatever. But uh, no, my wife keeps everything nice and uh, decorated. But we have these little themed things in our in our house, and and uh, so because the house is Victorian, she likes antique looking kind of things. So um, the Boken is actually propped up near this uh, Asian-looking vase that is sitting on a on a stand, right? So unless you unless you're looking for it, you can't see it. But even if you could see it, it doesn't look out of place in the room. So it's not like I just had something that looks like a beater Boken from the dojo propped up there because I'm gonna deal with people who come in my house. No, it's just there. You know, it's just. Part of the the core, so to speak. Um, there are. Uh, my wife's a big fan of knights, so we have this thing that has uh, this this knight with a stand that has. They're actually letter openers, but they're the sword styles of these different historical knights, right? So that's on this bookshelf near where this book is, right? So and these things slide right out. They're they're uh, like I said, they're letter openers, but they're not letter openers if they don't need to be. So I just I just kind of place things so that um, you know it, it's just kind of worse. But if you think about fortifications and you think about the way uh, military uh, the military would set up around a consulate or something like that, right? What you're looking at is a way to channel uh, people into a given entry point. So it's very difficult to rush, um, you know, to, to just bring a whole uh, mass army in or, or a whole group, right? They've got to come through a single door. Uh, you lead them into a hallway, right? 
yeah, choke point, right? Uh, and then you create uh, abutments or things that the Germans used to call dragon's teeth and things like that, right? Hmm. So the way the the way the furniture is is laid out, right? So it's laid out so that you know you know where it is, so it's easy for you to navigate in the dark. But it's not easy for somebody who's uh, not familiar with with the way it is. Um, I'm a big fan of changing the layout. We're about to completely changed our bedroom uh, by like 90 degrees, okay? bed and all. Okay? Um, one, my wife wants to change, but at the same time, anybody that's ever been in the house, they can only make their plans based on what they know. So it's the same thing with like in the store. They move things, right, so that you're always having to look for it, always having to figure it out. It causes you to buy more things. That's why stores do it. But in my home, if I routinely change things, whether it's changing the lock uh, on the gate or whatever, and how, how often do people do that, right? Something as simple as changing the locks. Um, but presenting, the other thing you can do that is a presence or a, or a perception thing is just changing or, or you know, changing, uh, updating some things. Uh, an example, right? The client that I'm working with, they have this big fenced perimeter around a manufacturing plant, and they've got these gates. Well, the gates have locks. They've got these big chains. Looks really good, right? We check the locks are checked on a regular basis to make sure that they work. So these gates are functional, but the chains and the locks are really old. So functional or not, what they're presenting is a perception or they're creating a perception of we don't look here. This gets no attention. So one of the first things I had them do was get brand new shiny chains and locks and put those on the gates. Okay? Because now that says this is all new. This is brand new. You're going to have to work to get through this. Okay? It doesn't look old and rusted and things yeah. like that, right? So just kind of updating things, right? Uh, making sure the shrubs are, are, are trimmed and all that so that uh, these people have little to nothing to hide behind or to work their way through. Uh, creating little flower beds, which your wife would like. I know you're a little you – know, some of the posts I've seen, uh, Lee. Um, having some flower beds right uh, coming off the porch or where the shrubs would be or whatever, and just making sure that there's there's fresh mulch in there. And it doesn't require a lot of work, just even if you don't put mulch in, but you get a hoe out there or a garden rake and, and break this stuff up so that, you know, bad guys know what to look for and they know that they don't want to be leaving evidence behind. So either they get through to a certain point um, or they try and they're leaving footprints behind because the cops are going to come and do plaster casts. That's what we did all the time. Right, so you get shoe size and all kinds of evidence and things like that. But just by trimming these things and by creating basically a castle moat, but you're doing it with the ground instead of with water. What you're doing is you're creating a deterrent because they can't come at you without going through the front door, without leaving evidence, without leaving footprints, without dragging mud around, uh, without being easily seen. Mm-hmm. Right, so. There's just these different things you can do, everything from, like I said, hiding weapons in, in convenient places for yourself in the house to creating choke points, to creating barriers, to setting the furniture up so that it's it's not everything's not against the wall with this big open area, and they can walk from the front door right to the stairs to go upstairs, you know, whatever. Um, making sure that your habits are uh, like mine. I, I live in a very quiet area, probably similar to yours, um, but very, very quiet, right? Um, lots of people leave their doors unlocked. I don't. Same thing with the car doors and all that. Every time I get out, I lock my car doors. Why? Because I travel. 
I don't want to find myself in Detroit or New York City or whatever and then have to remember, especially mm-hmm. if I'm in a rush, to have to remember to do these things. So we do it all the time. That way, there is no guessing on the part of these people, right? Um, anybody that's ever come to my back door knows it's not as easy as picking the lock because we have an electronic keypad to get into the house, right? We don't have – now, I'm going to put this out publicly, but we don't have um, a security guard company, um, you know, wired to our house. We've got me, right? Mm-hmm. But we don't have a security guard company. We have this, this, this keypad, which is just something that, you know, the previous owner put on there um, for uh, entry. But the number of people that see that and think that we have ADT or whoever watching the house – is is amazing, and mm-hmm. I don't tell them that we don't. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you know, uh, but you can. There's, there's if you think of your security from three rings, right, or using three concentric rings like a bullseye, where the outer ring, and here's free consulting stuff that I pay that I charge people. Let's just say it's a couple of dollars an hour. Anyway, so there's three rings, right? The outer ring is your perimeter. Okay, so it's your it's your your property boundaries, whether it's your house or your apartment or your business or whatever. That's your perimeter, right? So there's things that you need to do there to to deter, okay, and to uh, kind of limit access and, and whatnot. So it could be a could be a, a picket fence or whatever, okay? And then the next circle in is your building access, okay? Not just your front and back door with your house, but also ground-level windows, Basement windows, any windows that could be uh, accessed from the from the ground, uh, where they can just kind of lift it and and go in or break a window with that, whatever. Okay. So, uh, and if they're going up on a porch, right, the door, the, the and, and the windows right there, um, those windows. If the porch wasn't there, they'd be way higher up off the ground than other ones. But once the person's on a porch, that's easy to climb through. Okay. And don't confuse having glass as having a barrier. Okay. Um, now, I don't mean that you have to put bars in your windows, but either way. So that's that's the next stage, right? You're building access. And then the, the third circle on the inside is you, right? And what you are capable of doing should somebody come into your actual personal space, okay? And that's everything from using furniture or other obstacles to keep that thing between them and you all the way to hand-to-hand um, and dealing with things up close and personal where you can smell them. So Great question, Lee. Break awesome. it down. Yeah, if you can break it down that way. Uh, the other thing you can do, too, is if you know the kanji for, and even if you don't, the kanji for um, O or king or queen, ruler, is mm. three horizontal lines like the san, right, um, uh, the kanji for three, and then a vertical line running from top to bottom. Um, and then so you have high, middle, and low, right? If you could, If you could superimpose that over the outside of your house, and then invert it, right? So the top line is, you know, you have this 10 GG, right? Heaven, earth, and mankind, right? So you have a high high horizontal line, a mid-horizontal line, and a low horizontal line. But when you superimpose that over the outside of your house, you just invert it. The bottom line is your high priority, high risk, because it's ground-level stuff. Mid is mid-priority, high is low priority. So just start from the ground up and seal things off that way. So was that helpful? Was that hopefully that's what you wanted? Um, is that helpful at all? 
That was amazing. I've been here taking notes with my tablet. <laughs> oh, okay. And this stuff just falls out, so <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah. So uh, if you're interested in more of the workplace violence kind of stuff, I'm, just, I'm, I'm exploding that part of my business, and I don't mean getting rid of it. I mean really ramping it up. Uh, so uh, I was doing it part-time for a while, and uh, there's just this huge need. Some other consultants came to me and said they don't know why I'm not doing this full-time because I'm only one of maybe uh, half a dozen to a dozen people in this country that could actually handle this side of, like, keeping people safe and all that because I'm not your typical security consultant. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway. Now, I, I see here, sir, um, that – and I, I know we're kind of – I'm watching the clock here because we're getting close, and I don't want the recording yeah, yeah. part of this to cut off. But I did I did see just now a question pop up from Gregory, who's listening in, uh, who asked okay. if uh, you uh, have yourself in a place of concealment and the intruder does not know you're within striking distance of him or her. Would you make an attack upon him or her, or would you let them pass by? So – you know, that choice of whether to engage in that situation or if they don't know you're there, do you, do you let them go? So I think uh, that's kind of the, the, the question there. The answer is who else is home with me or who else is in my area of influence that can't get out or can't handle themselves? That's my answer. Hmm. So my answer is if this guy is passing by and heading somewhere, and see, this is always my litmus test. Even if I'm out on the street, uh, and I see somebody being attacked. One, I don't know if the guy being attacked, because I just turned the corner, right? I don't know if it's yeah. an attack. Maybe it's the, the guy that's beaten on this guy is defending himself, and I missed the initial attack. But either way, right? So I have kind of a litmus test that if it's only one, maybe two attackers and there are no weapons involved, I will insert myself in there and and figure it out and save the other person. If it's more than two people and, and or weapons are involved, I will take up a position of concealment and observe and call 911 from there and stuff like that. And then um, act, I'll be able to act as a witness later to bring this guy to justice or whatever. If yeah. I'm in a workplace, if I'm at home or whatever, I'm the only one or, you know, if, if, if that's the case, then I'm going to hide or I'm going to try to get my family out first or whatever. If I cannot and I think that other people are in danger, then, one, I'm always going to let them go by okay? because I stand a better chance of getting them with a surprise attack than I do by stepping out and going, aha, not that anyone can do that, right? But a lot of people that are martial artists or self-defense inclined or whatever um, choose to confront somebody face-to-face, nose-to-nose, you get out of here, oh, I'm going to, what? yeah, no, Um He's in my house. He's in mm-hmm. my uh, field of uh, influence. I'm going to let him go by, and then I'm going to take him from behind. Uh, yeah. Just, uh, I'm, it's safer. I'm my my, uh, my uh, ability to succeed, uh, it just, it's going to go up from there. So, uh, but Great. The, and the first part is it depends, and I yeah. hate to be as yeah. vague as that, but uh, hopefully that helps. <laughs> Very uh, cool. So. Uh, don't think there's any other questions at this point. Um, okay. Yeah, I think that's that's all, all right. of them at the moment. 
Okay. All right. Well, uh, there were some great questions there and, uh, you know, some really important topics. Lee, thanks again for for your great comments and uh, great having you be a part of the show today. And we'll be back again doing it next Friday. We will. (laughs) Will we? Uh, Oh, yeah. I have a – I do have an admin thing there. Uh, I will be in Boston from the 24th, 23rd, 24th, something like that through the 27th. I don't think that's going to interfere at the moment. I don't think it's going to interfere uh, with the call, but if it does and if I have to be on the road on Friday or something like that, we might have to do this with me on the road. So um, we'll have to figure that out as we get closer. So just giving people a heads up on that. Great. Okay. okay. All right. I think that's it. Excellent. I think I, we've gone way over, so we need to we need to end this before we get booted. That's right. <laughs> thanks, everyone, well, for being a part of the show. Guys. Yeah, thanks for being a part of the show. Yeah, always touch my thing. Thank you for listening to Kudet, the podcast for self-defense and martial arts news, interviews, techniques, and history. For more information on upcoming martial arts seminars, camps, and classes with Sheehan Miller, or to submit a question or discussion topic to the show, call 570-884-1118 or visit warrior-concepts-online.com.